This podcast is made possible by Sage People and U.S. Bank. Hi, this is Rob Kornog, CFO of Punchbowl Social, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. This is episode 441. And the role was really, it was, it was called sales finance at Cisco, but it was really kind of a business partner to the team. And it was a challenge for me because I was used to kind of sitting in a queue, banging out my, you know, banging out my uh, financial statements and reports. I had salespeople paging me uh, all, all times of day or night. Uh, and they had such a sense of urgency that everything seemed to be an emergency. It, it took me a while. I actually stayed at Cisco for about five or six years. And during that time, I really evolved as, as a finance leader into a business partner. I really embraced what it means to be uh, engaged with the business. I took that new mindset with me. From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. Hi, it's Jack Sweeney. On this episode, we speak to Kevin Durkin, CFO of ThreatStack. Among the career milestones Kevin shares with us is a pivotal controller role, where after his company was acquired by Cisco Systems, he was handed a new set of priorities. How Kevin responds to those priorities arguably set him on the path to the CFO office. Kevin shares this chapter while revealing his growing appetite for operational data after these words from our sponsor. Hello, Jack here. I have a message for you from the folks at Sage People. Decisions about your people should be driven by data. But is your HR department still using spreadsheets to keep track of your people? It's time to move to cloud. Understand what makes your employees tick. Know your best performers or determine absence trends all with a cloud HR and people system. Sage People empowers organizations to respond quickly and easily to changing priorities in today's shifting world of work. It means you can make sure your workforce is able to adapt while staying connected and engaged wherever they are. Discover how to get instant insights at your fingertips. Visit us today at sageintech.com forward slash sage dash people. Hello, we're speaking to Kevin Durkin, CFO of ThreatStack, a maker of cloud security tools. Kevin, welcome. Thank you, Jack. I'm happy to be here. Kevin, we're going to begin where we always do, which is to ask uh, our guest CFO to look back and share with us some of the experiences that help prepare them for a CFO role. What comes to mind when I ask you that question? Yeah, sure. Um, 
I'm not a busy guy like a lot of CFOs are today, especially at a, at a high growth startup. You know, the, the day, the work day kind of continues uh, into the evening and over the weekend, but so nowadays in the connected world we live in. Um, so I don't really do a lot of uh, thinking about looking back at my career. Um, so, uh, you know, when I, when I reviewed my, 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 my resume and my, my background, there were a few points that came to mind. Uh, three big ones, really, that kind of probably were, were the critical parts of my, kind of the foundation of my career. Uh, I, I went to a, a liberal arts school in upstate New York, Hobart College, and I graduated with a, a degree in a, in a major in economics, which really didn't prepare me for much. I had a nice uh, kind of worldly background that you get from the liberal arts uh, experience, but it really wasn't, you know, didn't give me practical real-life work knowledge that you, that you need to kind of to make it in today's world. And also, it was 1990, which wasn't the, the greatest time in terms of uh, the history of our economy. So, I ended up going and learning about a program at Northeastern University called the Graduate School of Professional Accounting. Uh, it's a big-long program, uh, 12 months of school, intense school, and then three months in the middle of a uh, internship. Uh, and people would find, uh, you know, find an internship with one of the big six accounting firms at the time. Uh, I interned with the rate. And after the program ended, I went to work for them. Uh, it was really this combination of uh, this real-world education that I, that I got at Northeastern through that program, learning really learning accounting as a business. And that, that time spent public accounting at Deloitte uh, really, really were the foundation of my, my early career. Yeah, I think you shared what I would say is the first milestone. You, you redirected yourself, sort of got focused on accounting. Uh, but somewhere along the way, clearly you became more of a visionary, someone who could uh, be more involved in startups and talk about, uh, you know, the potential of business ideas rather than just the practical uh, accounting knowledge. How did that happen? No, absolutely. When I, when I left public, I went to work for a company called Security Dynamics, which today is known as RSA, which probably most people are more familiar with. RSA is the security division of EMC today, and I now I think it's part of Dell, but back in the day it was called Security Dynamics. It was a high-growth, public, uh, publicly traded company, um, technology company here in uh, Bedford, Massachusetts. Uh, and even though I had not worked on any public companies as, a, as an auditor at Deloitte or worked on any SEC reporting, um, I, I, I got the job. I ended up doing uh, consolidations, multi-currency, um, uh, uh, exchanges and, and doing SEC reporting for a high growth um, technology company. And, and I, it was the skills that I picked up, which I didn't really think I had picked up um, at Deloitte, and also that, that kind of uh, world based education at Northeastern that really prepared me for this. Um, I, you know, I had to learn a lot of it on the go, but I had that foundation coming out of public accounting and coming out of that. Northeastern GSPA program, but they gave me the skills and the ability to, to learn SEC reporting on the go. Um, and I took that experience to two other startup companies after that, um, as well as kind of financial reporting managers or a, uh, uh, or a director of finance at one company. The two companies were Aeroflane Communications and Sorry.com. There I helped the, helped the finance team and the, you know, the whole company is kind of go through through an IPO process, the initial public offering process, uh, which is an amazing process to 
go through in terms of learning and, and being exposed to, um, to, to the, the screening of becoming a public company. And the whole process is really big. It's also incredibly challenging. Lots of long hours uh, and lots of sacrifices were made. But I, I do see that, you know, that leveraging that, that those skills in terms of SEC, SEC reporting and then I picked up at, at Screw Dynamics really opened the door for these uh, these opportunities at Aeropoint and, and Cyber.com where I could come and be an effective part of the team to help guide them through the IPO process. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's the process of going public is part of the most um, highest level of due diligence that, that a company can go through. Every single uh, number that's in the S1 or prospectus, uh, which is the document that gets filed when you go public, uh, the check by auditors and the financial statements go through a whole new level of scrutiny because of the increased visibility and the risk associated. And so we've gone through that process a couple of times that really, uh, you know, opened up uh, things for me when I moved to the venture back startup world. Venture back startups are always raising money, so there's a whole due diligence process related to that. And then ultimately, a venture back startup either goes public or they get acquired. There's always a liquidity event that the investors are looking forward, uh, looking forward, and there's a whole due diligence process that goes through during that M&A process. Um, so this, those, that experience going through those IPOs. Working at security dynamics, um, doing SEC reporting really helped open the doors for future things in terms of becoming a finance leader at a, at a, a venture back startup, and then hopefully, you know, opening the door to me becoming a CFO. The other thing I wanted to speak to was uh, after one of those companies that I worked at Airpoint, uh, we got acquired by a company called Cisco Systems, all the large tech bell others. Um, they, they're surviving, but they were, you know, a huge acquirer of companies back uh, back in the early 2000s and 1990s. Something um, like that happened at Cisco was it really transformed from an accountant or a financial reporting person into a business partner. And, you know, up until Cisco, I had been sitting in a cube, banging out reports, working on SEC reports, getting financial statements, reports, have you, what have you. Um, working through the due diligence process for these IPOs that I was a part of. But I really wasn't interacting with the business uh, or with the different functions and different folks. I really didn't have a sense of what was going on in the business. But at Cisco, I moved into a role supporting the sales teams and everyone who had worked with salespeople before. And the role was really, it was, it was called sales finance at Cisco, but it was really kind of a business partner to the team. And it was a challenge for me because I was used to kind of sitting in a queue, banging out my, you know, banging out my uh, financial statements and reports, uh, not having to interact with, you know, folks outside of the finance or accounting function. Um, so it was a real challenge for me because I'd never been used to that. I'd sales people paying me. I'm probably dating myself, uh, but I'm paying me uh, all, all times of day or night. Uh, and that's such a sense of urgency that everything seemed to be an emergency. Um, so uh, it took me a while. I actually stayed at Cisco for about five or six years. And during that time, I really evolved as, as a finance leader into a business partner. I really embraced what it means to be uh, engaged with the business, to understand the business, to help folks deliver on their goals. Um, and when I left Cisco, I went back into the startup world, and I took that new mindset with me, Jack. Uh, and I think it's really helped 
me uh, excel in my career as I went to be a corporate controller, a director of finance, uh, and then eventually to a CFO. I think your experience at uh, Cisco, I think, illustrates how very often a career that can be boiled down to uh, individual decisions made along the way. How you illustrated the salespeople calling you all times of day and how there was a willingness on your part to be responsive, even though uh, you might have been of the mindset that that's not, my, that's not the role of a controller or what have you. Uh, Cisco was telling you, yes, it is, I guess. I think that's uh, a choice many finance people have to make along the way. Is this the path for me or isn't it? And you, I think, very clearly said yes. Um, or was there some doubt in your mind at that place in time? No, absolutely. I mean, to be honest with you, I think I look back at Cisco kind of fondly, but also do have some, uh, you know, there were some challenges. Uh, the nature of the world was, was so different. Uh, it was it was largely, a, you know, a support or a business partner function, which I wasn't used to. Um, but, you know, the, the, I stuck with it for a few reasons. Like, you know, personal reasons, we started, I got married, we started having kids. I could work from home. There was a lot of flexibility there. Um, and also, you know, Cisco was, was looked at as viewed as by a lot of folks, uh, especially in the tech world, as, you know, the, one of the bellwethers, one of those companies people looked up to. So uh, I, I wanted to do my best to kind of make, you know, try to make a career there as best I could. There were challenges in terms of being uh, a remote worker. I worked in, in the Boston area, supporting several local sales teams. Uh, and, and the Mecca, or the headquarters, are in San Jose on the West Coast in Silicon Valley. So there were so many uh, career development opportunities within a large company outside of, uh, outside of, um, outside of the headquarters there. So um, I tried to make the most of it. It really was challenging. There were times when I honestly just wanted to quit because, you know, uh, I felt like it was just, you know, on a treadmill and couldn't, you never got out, you know, got out, couldn't get out from underneath it in terms of the, the, the never-ending asks and, and requests. But at some point, I think I, I just embraced it. Uh, I don't know, you know, it's kind of like osmosis. It just took time for me to kind of realize that this is, this is what being a business partner is. Uh, there's been a few kind of aha moments in my life. One was when I left public accounting, and, and as an audit, I honestly didn't feel like I was learning that much. But when I left, I really had this great foundation from internal controls to how to prepare financial statements and footnotes, to how to approach accounting and finance. And at the time when I was sitting there auditing and taking and tying, as you used to say, uh, at a client, I, I wasn't really kind of understanding what I was learning and the foundation I was getting. So when I left, so I really, I was like, well, that was an interesting five or six years. I had some ups and downs. Um, the economy kind of went up and down as well. And as, as on the back end of my time at Cisco, the, the, the economy was improving. Uh, and therefore, there were more opportunities back in the startup world again. I left there, and I wasn't really sure what, you know, what skills or what learnings I had or lessons that I had learned. But I, I did, you know, again, it was like osmosis. I had learned what it was to be a business partner, and I took a totally different mindset back into the startup world when I was a controller and director of finance at these different organizations that I was at. And today, as I said, well, you know, I tell my team, we are business partners. We are a service organization, you know, internal service organization to the team. We should put our customers first where those customers are, you know, our business partners or employees here, 
and or when we touch, you know, the outside world, our customers and or vendors, however, whoever we're talking to, always, you know, uh, put, your, put the right foot forward and, uh, and, and put the customer first and, and, and remember that you're more than, you know, uh, you know uh, an accounts payable clerk or a water management processor. Uh, you know, you're, you're, you're helping the business move forward. Um, and, and put customers first and have the customer mindset first so that in everything you do to deliver the best, you know, deliver your job the best you can. So. Kevin, I just, uh, we want to talk to you about Threat Stack, but I just want to uh, have one other thought on, on, on your career and, and, and what you shared with us so far. Um, what, I, what I think is interesting, when you see an executive like yourself who's been a CFO at multiple uh, venture-backed startups, uh, very often, there are two paths uh, for those executives. Some of them came up through the business development ranks, investment banking, investments, finance, and others came your path. But if they came the controller accounting path, they had to demonstrate that they could be a partner. In your case, it was that Cisco experience. How am I doing so far? <laughs> Does my summation reflect your experience? Quite a bit more. And, you know, absolutely. I mean, when I look back at my, uh, the path I took, I, I call it a traditional, but I got items around traditional in terms of, you know, traditional uh, public accounting, CPA, uh, controller, slash, and then down the CFO track. But as you look at that, there are many CFOs who don't go that path. They are, uh, you know, they went to the top business school, or maybe a, uh, a corp dad, maybe they're FCNA. Maybe they did investment banking or venture capitalist. Um, so it's a, a very different background. Um, and I think the, the advantage they have is they have that business partner aspect. They have that more um, fundraising, kind of a document, if you will. Um, so it is, you know, I don't think it's, I think it's more challenging for folks coming out of public accounting um, to kind of go the track I have, at least today, I think because a lot of them don't have that opportunity to, to, to learn the business partner skills. You don't learn that in public accounting. They don't do a great job really of, of teaching anything. They just kind of throw work at you. Uh, and they kind of have a churn and burn mentality in the public, uh, in public accounting. And knowing that not everyone's going to, you know, ascend to, the, to, to a senior manager and to a director and to a partner. And they don't want everyone because there's not enough room for everyone at the, at the top of those, at those, uh, at those firms. Um, and uh, so it, it, it is, I think, a little more challenging for the traditional CPA to come out and, and get on the track. But there are, you know, there are FP&A opportunities where you might you get to touch other parts of the business and, um, versus just the financial reporting track. But you have to make sure that you are, uh, you know, you have a sense of where you want to go and how you're going to get there. Uh, and definitely business partnering, I think, is the key part, uh, part of, uh, of that journey. Um, because uh, you can't just sit in a, in a cube or an office and, and prepare financials. There's, there's much more to the job than being a finance leader, a CFO, or a corporate controller than uh, putting control in place and creating financials and making sure your vendors are paying. Uh, you're paying your vendors and your customers are paying you. Um, there's helping the business and, and the different functions and the departments deliver on their goals and objectives, which is really what you know, our business is all about. Okay, we want to find out about ThreatStack now. Can you tell us about uh, the marketplace for these types of offerings today, and what is it that makes them competitive out there? What gives them their competitive edge? Sure, no, absolutely. So ThreatStack is uh, you know, a well-capitalized venture-backed uh, growth 
company, uh, it was founded in late 2012. We're a cloud infrastructure security company. Um, so we offer a cloud-optimized intrusion defense system, and we also offer some services uh, with our cloud checkouts program. So at a higher level, like when I'm talking to my kids or, or to folks who are uh, intimately involved or with the cloud or with, with security, basically we try to help companies avoid a data breach. We also help them with uh, in terms of their compliance goals, so those in the hot, more highly regulated industries such as those uh, subject to HIPAA, those subject to PCI. Um, a lot of our clients today are SaaS or uh, subscription-based technology companies that are running in the cloud, delivering a, a service or a platform in the cloud. And as you know, uh, in this data, data, the data breach is uh, a form, one data breach probably could take down and ruin a, a, you know, ruin a, a, a small startup that uh, the large company has the wherewithal, has the funds to kind of weather weather the storm. So we're basically trying to help companies, secure companies, um, ensure that they, you know, so they can sell their own, you know, help facilitate their selling their products. Their customers know that their their data is fine and secure, running in, in our customers' platforms. And so that's really what we do here in terms of the, the differentiator. Um, the breadth of visibility we provide in the cloud infrastructure is really uh, a key differentiator. We um, uh, we also have a combination of services and product offering, which I think is unique in, in, in the market. Um, we we want to try to help augment uh, our customers' security teams. Uh, security uh, experienced cloud security people are in such high demand that our customers cannot fill awards, and sometimes they just can't afford a full-time resource. So our service offering helps augment um, our clients and our customers' uh, service, uh, service security teams so that they can focus on other things. A lot of folks are uh, wearing multiple hats depending on the size of the organization, and uh, you know, much larger teams, companies have larger uh, security organizations, um, so those are the key things. The market is super noisy and crowded. Um, that's one of the appealing things, but it's also one of the challenges, Jack. Um, so there's a lot of new entrants coming in, new startups joining. And there are some larger players. We're seeing consolidation in the space. Uh, companies like uh, Checkpoint buying smaller startups. We're seeing Power Apple Networks buying, buying smaller startups. So um, it's an exciting time because the cloud, it, you know, we're at the intersection of the cloud and security, two super hot spaces. But there's also, you know, a, you know, a, a, a gold rush, if you will, of people jumping in trying to um, try to get a piece of the market. But, uh, you know, that being said, we're making great progress, uh, differentiating ourselves in the market um, and, and, um, and growing our business. Now, can you tell us about the key metrics that you rely on to reveal how the company's performing? And uh, we're, we're looking for sort of your the reality of your day-to-day here. What are the what are the metrics you look at before your first cup of coffee in the morning? Yeah, no, that's a good one. Um, yeah, we're a SaaS company. We're a software as a service subscription-based company. So we look at a lot of the SaaS metrics. So uh, we're looking at churn. You know, that's when we lose customers or they downgrade or they cancel outright. We look at ARR, uh, annualized recurring revenue, uh, because we're a subscription-based company. Um, we're looking at, uh, and we've got kind of 
our business down into kind of brand and expand. So landing new customers, expanding within our customer base, uh, and obviously renewing uh, hopefully that customer base as well. Don't worry that you know there are tons of SaaS metrics that you can get lost in. Uh, uh, a lot of them are, are less than straightforward, but those are really the key uh, the key metrics that we look at and track to make sure that the business is going in the right direction. Is there uh, are, are non-financial metrics becoming a bigger part of the mix? I mean, there are so many that you know there are so many different pieces of the business. Um, uh, you know, like a lot, like many companies, we you know, we're driven largely by the financial metrics because I think they are really indicative of the health of the business. Um, but we're constantly exploring which metrics are the right ones to, to focus in on so that we can take actionable insights and, and take action on in terms of um, making sure that we're going in the right direction. When you uh, first stepped into the role uh, of an ad threat staff, it was a familiar set of circumstances. What was the job you wanted to create for yourself here? Is there something you're going to do differently, having all this experience behind you? Is there some idea that you had now I can can be this type of CFO? What was the, what was going through your mind? <laughs> As I've gotten older, I've gotten a little wiser. At least I try to think so. One, um, I, I wanted you know high level objectives of, of the next opportunity that ended up being back was I wanted to work with really good quality people. Um, uh, and I wanted to have an opportunity to build, build the business, you know, build something special. Uh, and at that back, you know, we got to come back to the intersection of both those things. We have a great team. We have a great CEO. We're down well driven, hard-working people. Um, but we're good people at the end of the day, and we like each other. Um, there are plenty of places I worked in my career where um, maybe there was a great opportunity the company was doing well. Uh, but the leadership or the tone from the top was not that great. Uh, if you will. Um, so those were really the high level things where I was looking for. I also was excited to get, get into an earlier stage company. Tech uh, had just closed their Series B uh, financing. Uh, I was the first CFO hire. I was really kind of one of the first professional accounting finance hires. Um, and there were about 30, 30 employees back then. So it was, it was really an opportunity to, to really get in the early, early stage and hopefully help, you know, scale this company and turn it into something special. Uh, that was really the, the excitement and the draw for me. Uh, you know, the plan got here, there was finance and really the GNA function was essentially outsourced. Uh, there were no full-time hires. I was, I dropped in and I was here. But I worked on hiring staff and kind of migrating off of, off of the dependence on contractors. So really bringing the function, you know, the finance accounting functions in-house, Playing HR in house, um, and, and that's really what I've been working on over the last two and a half years. We always like to ask for a finance strategic moment, and this is where uh, sort of an aha moment, and you've already shared a few with us, I believe. Does anything come to mind when I ask for a finance strategic moment? Yeah, sure, absolutely. Um, Earlier this year, we, we learned again by tracking different information, talking to customers, uh, engaging with the marketplace that. Uh, the right thing to do is to expand our customer offering uh, beyond our product. Um, and and, and what that was, we, we decided to launch the Cloud Tech Ops program, which is a co-managed service offering, which I alluded to earlier. Really, we're, you know, we basically will help, will help augment uh, the customer's uh, security operations uh, because they don't have resources or those resources have, you know, too many things on their plate. 
fairly different our budget for full time full time and uh, security experts. Uh, so when we launched that, it was really the whole company had to get around it. Uh, we had to do certain things such as create scores from you know source supporting the the financial offering, touch scores, establish pricing, uh, make some adjustments to our customer agreements. You know, we had to uh, create a service description, kind of like a statement of work, if you will. Uh, and then we had to make sure we had the resources on the delivery side to, uh, to, to deliver on this service. We, uh, so we had to go out and make sure we had those values in place or we hired and trained folks that, uh, to make sure that we had the, had the values in place when, when we started selling this offering to be able to deliver on it and deliver on it in, in, in a meaningful way. Um, this is my really kind of back to uh, in a good example of being a value business partner. Um, and that wasn't me alone kind of coming up with this idea that this prospect program was a great idea. But it was, it was the leadership team, all of us working together, uh, looking at, at the business, looking at the, the pros and cons of how things have gone in the past, listening to the market, and, and working with our, the cross, the cross functionally to come up with this idea and get behind it and deliver on it and make sure that we could go to market and deliver on it. So, kind uh, of a better example of, about, you know, being a value business partner than really kind of an aha moment. Some of the aha, aha moments I think I alluded to earlier are more kind of professional versus, um, I, know, I guess, finance-intensive, if you will. You know, that, that aha moment when I left public accounting and realized what a foundation I had walked away with uh, in, from, from my time there and working toward my CPA. Um, that aha moment when I left Cisco and, and my career really had transformed or I had transformed into a, into a finance business partner. Um, those are two kind of aha moments for me uh, professionally, more so than kind of, uh, um, you, know, you know, kind of helping kind of drive uh, a company or make a change in a company. When we come back, Kevin Durkin steps into the mentoring round with us. And somehow, we end up talking about data, sales operations data. Not sure how that happened. In Kevin's case, that data he accesses from Salesforce. Increasingly, operational data is top of mind for finance leaders. And that is the case with Kevin. We'll be right back. technology adoption, business partnership, strategic direction, resource optimization, and honestly, scalability, right? We are past the point in business of throwing people to solve problems. Like, let's take a five-second pause and RIP to that business strategy, right? <laughs> you can't just throw people to solve problems anymore. Hi, I'm Rowan Tonkin, your host at Being Planful. You just heard from Chris Ortega, a recent guest on the show. If you want to hear from guests like Chris talking about today's trends for tomorrow's FBA leaders, you can subscribe at beingplanful.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The business landscape is changing quickly. As the pressure to manage expenses efficiently and strategically increases, you need solutions that not only help drive down costs and improve efficiencies, but meet the changing needs of your business. At U.S. Bank, we can help. 
We'll work with you to uncover your specific payment challenges and bring you proactive and innovative solutions and strategies that help you meet the financial goals of your organization. Our commitment to doing the right thing for our customers has earned us the designation of one of the world's most ethical companies from the Ethisphere Institute for six years in a row. To learn more, visit us at usbpayment.com. Okay, we're going to move to our mentoring round where I get to ask you several quick questions intended to uh, inspire and uh, mentor future finance leaders. I want to know what's exciting you today about business and finance. What is it that you're finding interesting? Uh, what's what's exciting? What gets you out of bed in the morning kind of stuff? No, absolutely. No, so that's a great question, Jack. You know, uh, in my, one of the things I love about startups and I really didn't get into, and, and I think this is one thing that, um, that, again, not for everyone, startups are not for everyone, but what I love is I get to wear multiple hats. Um, multiple hats may be, you know, I pretend to be a lawyer or I engage with our outside lawyers uh, when needed, you know, when I need a real expert. Um, I wear an HR hat. Um, I do have an HR team now and a director, of, you know, an experienced director of HR that, um, that leads that group. Um, and then there's you know, things with IT or facilities. And also one of the big parts of my team is actually um, what a lot of companies call business operations. We call it sales and marketing operations. We probably have 75% of our, our employees who use Salesforce on, on a day-to-day basis to run the business. Um, years ago, um, you know, some of my earlier in my career, uh, it was the ERP system, you know, the NetSuite, the, the SAPs, the Oracles of the world. That really were, you know, this mission critical system. And, you know, those were different companies and different times. In this day and age, you know, we had QuickBooks, uh, you know, over on the side, but the business run, you know, the, the system that we're running the business with is, is Salesforce. Um, this is the first time I've ever worked at that that has been the case, where 75% of the company is running, uh, you know, working off of Salesforce and that Salesforce ecosystem of, of different sales and marketing tools that interface with it. And, um, and, I, and it's the first time I've ever worked where I had the sales and marketing operations function reporting into me. So that's been a huge challenge for me. Um, I've had to learn on the go. Um, it kind of almost seems like over the last two and a half years, it kind of this the Salesforce ecosystem and all, and, and the becoming a mission-critical system kind of kind of just slowly evolved over time. And, and just recently, we kind of, the light bulb went off that, you know, we need to make sure we have governance around this. We, we need to make sure we're, we're investing and sourcing uh, this function properly because it is what we're running the business with today. So um, that, you know, that is, there's always something to learn. There's always a new, a new uh, facet of the business to dig into and learn, and that's, Again, that's one of the reasons why I love a startup. Uh, nothing, you come in and you, you get to build things from scratch. We brought, we brought finance uh, and HR in-house. We built those functions out internally. Uh, um, you know, I had to learn, kind of stretch my HR chops until we had an HR professional that I'm working with. Similarly, on the, the sales and marketing operations side, uh, it's, it's, it's a learning area for me. I've worked in Salesforce over the years, but I never looked at a company that Salesforce, the CRM has become a real mission critical app. So um, that's that's something new. It's something I've been talking to other CFOs at Salesforce about is you know how they source, how what's their approach to uh, to their business office side of their house. 
all the other investments that, that it has, you know, executive level sponsorship? Does it does this function have a seat at the table? How are you addressing this? Because it really is something that over the last few years really is, is, is a new thing in, in, in the business world. Now, so I'm trying to better understand. You say it's become more mission critical. Some of the, some of the metrics you mentioned earlier, those numbers or that visibility uh, has been achieved by ThreatStack via its use of Salesforce. Now, we've had uh, a number of recent finance leaders tell us how uh, part of their day is spent uh, peering down into uh, uh, Salesforce data. Uh, but is that uh, what you're sort of describing here? Is that, am I uh, wrong about that? Or is that, uh, is that how you're spending your days? No, no, absolutely. Yeah, good question. No, it's, yeah, you're on to the right thing there, Jack. Yeah, it's, 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 all those metrics are coming out of Salesforce. So the, 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 the metrics we're using to run the business from a go-to-market perspective are all coming out of Salesforce. It, it was a guy when I had, my, had experience working with Salesforce. It was truly over to the side, and, and the sales team used it for forecasting and rolling up forecasts and tracking opportunities. It's really evolved immensely over time. Here, our, our sales team is using it to track opportunities to close land deals and to talk to prospects. On the customer experience side, our customer success side, the team managing the, uh, the customer experience uh, from the renewal perspective, from the onboarding perspective, to hopefully driving expansion contracts with them. That team is living and breathing in Salesforce. Uh, on the support side, uh, customer support side, we are tracking all our tickets, customer tickets, bug fixes, requests for enhancements, all through Salesforce. And then we have, we also have Salesforce is, is interconnected with a bunch of different tools such as SalesLoft, such as Salesforce, uh, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, uh, LinkedIn Sales Navigator, uh, tools like DataFox. It's linked in with Marketo, which is our marketing uh, automation system. So this, the go-to-market team really, and, and the leaders of the business, are really looking to the data that comes out of Salesforce uh, to track the business, to understand how we're doing, and also to make adjustments and, and analyze the data that's coming out of there. Uh, it's, 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 it's amazing um, what a change the things have done. Again, years ago, we were using ARP uh, systems that really run the business, but today, companies like us, uh, companies that are SaaS-based technology companies, Salesforce has really become the lifeblood. And, uh, okay, so you make the distinction there, SaaS-oriented. Do you think other industries as well that, uh, I, I, would, I would suspect, but you're saying that I think that visibility into the customer experience is what maybe Salesforce uh, is mostly uh, delivering to you? Absolutely. Our interaction with our prospects and all our, and our, our customers are tracked in Salesforce. So it's our database, our repository. If you want to look at activity going on in the customer, understand what's going on in the customer, you go into your Salesforce records and look at that. Um, versus the spread system. I mean, I think it's probably years ago, the, uh, these functions that we're doing are all in Salesforce. are probably, you know, against credit cost and ERP system or other types of systems or tools. Today, they are all, you know, Salesforce has grown. As you know, it's become one of the largest technology companies out there. They're out acquiring companies on a regular basis. Um, and, 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 and so it's evolved into this much bigger thing. I think it really has, and for, for many companies like ours, um, you know, I'm not going to want to go an ARP system because I'm still, I'm still really running my business in Salesforce, and ARP system is not going to replace that. 
So it might give you an interface, uh, you know, an integration that falls for us. So orders get pushed over and we can do our accounting and billing out of there. But um, it really, it, it's amazing how much the world has changed on that front where Salesforce has just moved up the stack and, is, and companies like our subscription-based companies or, you know, SaaS companies are running their business uh, really in Salesforce today. Well, it, it's time for me to step back into the mentoring round and ask you, is there a personal habit that you have that you believe has in some way contributed uh, to your professional success? Uh, that's a good one. Uh, good question, Jack. I mean, uh, I know a lot of it is uh, work ethic. Um, I grew up in a kind of a blue-collar home. My dad's an electrician. Neither of my parents went to, went to college. So um, I think a lot, of, a lot of who I am and my success is just hard work. Uh, um, my dad used to say, uh, uh, used the term both strength and ignorance. You know, I think, uh, you know, both. You just get out of the race, if you will. Working hard really kind of, um, uh, uh, I think, has been the cornerstone of my career. Um, trying to make some smart moves and putting building blocks in places like going to graduate school, going to public, going to public accounting, getting my CPA. Um, you know, I want to this guy. I didn't expect to transform into a business partner, but, you know, that was one of the nice byproducts of that. But at the end of the day, I think the common theme throughout my career uh, and through my education has always been hard work and dedication. Um, uh, you know, I like to think I have uh, a decent thing between my ears and my, in terms of my brain, in terms of having good business judgment and have a, you know, a, a decent level of intellect. But um, it's really about the hard work. I mean, I, you know, the, the time at Cisco, uh, you know, getting paid paid around the clock. I mean, we, that's the world we live in, in today's connected world. Um, and it, it, it's getting that extra, you know, that extra mile, that extra inch, uh, going an extra mile, you know, getting 110%. But really, it's going to make a difference in your career uh, versus kind of just doing enough to get by. Um, so I think for me personally, it's the network ethic um, that really has helped me. Uh, obviously, there are other pieces of the puzzle, but uh, in terms of like me personally, uh, it's been just working hard uh, at, at everything I do. Uh, Hopefully that uh, creates, you know, good results for me and for, for my business and for my career. And I think it has worked out pretty well. I just want to make the observation that I think uh, CFOs for venture-backed startups frequently have a robust uh, professional network. And it's, it's an ecosystem, really, that spans the world uh, from accounting to technology to investors and venture uh, uh, professionals, uh, and long ago they learned how to do this. I saw you were, in fact, going to be speaking at the uh, MIT CFO Summit coming up uh, this month. Uh, can, can you share with us some of your thinking on networking and how you've done it effectively over the years? Sure, sure, absolutely. Uh, well, I, actually, I wish this had happened earlier in my in my career. Uh, it happened when I was at Dollar.com. Uh, the kind of aha moment in terms of the, the value of, and the power of the network. Uh, the, there was the CFO at the time, Ken Goldman, um, in, you know, in part of gave me some great wisdom in terms of working on the net, working on your network in terms of uh, one from uh, from having the folks to reach out to to collaborate and bounce ideas off of uh, Simon Board, if you will. And then there's also the side of uh, the opening the door for career opportunities. Um, 
I mean, I, I think what he shared that knowledge, like with a lot of information and knowledge that comes comes my way, it, you know, the aha moment probably comes later. I did start working on my on my networking. I, I joined some financial executives networking groups. Uh, for example, the CFO leadership group. Uh, um, there was a small local one called the High Tech Financial Executive Network. Um, I started attending things like the MIT CFO Summit. Um, I did that partially for networking, partially for CPE credits for my CPA. Um, and also, a lot of these groups are great, again, sounding boards. People ask questions all the time to the group. We do kind of impromptu surveys. Everyone collaborates and gives back, um, and it works out really well. I know you know, that, was, that would be one um, recurrent wisdom that I would give to folks early in their career work on your network. Um, and I got to a certain point in my career. I, I can't remember the last time I used, uh, you know, a headhunter or a recruiter or a placement fund to find my next job. It's, it's just kind of come out of the power of my network. I start reaching out to folks. Um, and I worked hard on that. Um, it was a slow start at the beginning because I really didn't understand the value of it. Um, Ken, Ken Golden kind of told me to work on it. Uh, but I definitely today, uh, I know that. You know, you need to spend time on it, uh, to meet people for coffee here and there, build your network, and that, don't do it just selfishly, but because, you, you know, you can help yourself. You might find someone who, who is a good hire uh, for yourself, uh, for your team, for, for, for someone, uh, you know, for your business. Um, and, and you never know uh, how, how you're going to open up doors, like when you connect with people in person or, you know, kind of virtually today. I, the one place I do spend time in, in, in the social media world is LinkedIn. Really my only kind of uh, presence uh, in social media. I do spend a lot of time in there. Uh, part of that, also, I've learned is I try to help kind of uh, in terms of amplification of, for my company. Uh, uh, but also, there's probably a brand, you know, my own brand, uh, uh, you know, um, awareness that, that goes with that. You know, I'm, I'm not actually doing focused on my company and try to uh, try to get its attention. Um, but when I do that, there is probably some sort of Kevin Durkin CFO brand, uh, you know, awareness that, that goes along with it. So. Well, we're up to our final question, where I get to ask you, over the next 12 months, what are your priorities as a finance leader? So it's a good time of year. We are going into our FY19 uh, planning process. Uh, you know, right, you know we're, we're a high-growth startup company, and uh, the things I worry about or that I want to uh, – my objectives my objectives, objectives for my team next year are really kind of – Putting, putting the pieces in place so that we can scale this business from a people, process, and tools perspective. You know, if we want to, you know, for example, you know, become a 50, 100 million, 200 million dollar company, a company that goes public down the road, et cetera, uh, we need to have the tools and the systems and the processes in place to support that. Um, we keep working and plugging away that on, on that every day and every year. Um, but this year, I want to look at my technology stack. Uh, I want to make sure I get my arms around Salesforce and that we have the right governance uh, that we are delivering to our customers on the go-to-market team from a business perspective. It's really having the infrastructure in place to scale this business. Uh, we can keep adding people, but at some point you have to add the tools um, and the processes to make sure that you can grow the business effectively. Kevin Durkin, thank you for joining us on CFO Thought Leader. Thanks, Jack. It's been a pleasure.
Hey, don't forget, we're always happy to hear from you. Drop me an email at jack at cfothoughtleader.com. As always, thank you for listening.